prefer to have newer things than old things. Most people like new stuff, right? You probably like brand new uh, sneakers better than you like old, worn-out ones, right? Isn't that? Most, most of you probably agree with that. You probably like a brand new shiny bike better than you like a uh, old bike with a, with a blown tire and scratches all over it and a bent frame and that sort of thing, right? You like the new stuff, right? Toys. If you have toys, it's always fun to have new toys that don't have broken parts on them because they've been thrown around or stepped on. Uh, new stuff is, is almost always, I won't say always, but almost always better than old stuff, right? Well, that's definitely true of covenants. The new covenant, or renewed covenant, I'll explain that in a minute, is a better covenant than the old covenant that the Bible, that the writer of the Hebrews describes as the old covenant, which is actually the Mosaic covenant. Uh, And he makes the point, and you could probably heard it as I was reading that passage, trying to read that passage, the uh, new covenant is better than the old covenant. It's based on better promises, more blessed promises. So we are going to look at the difference between the New Covenant this morning and the Old Mosaic Covenant. And we're going to talk about why it's so much more blessed to be this side of what Jesus did for us than to live in the Old Testament age when Jesus hadn't come yet. So the uh, authors of the Old and New Testaments uh, use the word covenant on multiple different occasions to refer to multiple different relations or relationships. But when you boil it right down, there are essentially only two covenants, two essentially uh, different covenants, I should put and say, mentioned in the Bible. And uh, I'm going to read from the Westminster Confession of Faith because uh, they do an excellent job of describing the differences between describing these two covenants and how they relate and how they differ. So I'm going to read, and you may want to follow with me, if you turn to page 923 in your Psalter hymnal, I'm going to read from chapter 7. I'm going to read sections 2 and 3 and then sections 5 and 6, or paragraphs 2 and 3 and paragraphs 5 and 6. Again, this is in the Confession Uh, The Confession of Faith found on page 923 in the Psalter Hymnal. So, paragraph 2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Man, by his fall, having made himself uncapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. And then if you skip down paragraph 5 and 6, or point 5 and 6, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, 
sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal or Passover lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Number six. Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity, and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations." or you could use the word, and I'm going to use the word, administrations, as I work my way through this sermon. So, within the the latter, the second, gracious covenant, there are several dispensations, or again, I'm going to use the term administrations. Now, an administration or a dispensation is just an expression or an outworking or a manifestation, you can use all those words, of the one covenant of grace. And each succeeding administration, as you move forward in history, revealed something further about the coming Redeemer and his mediatorial work on behalf of sinners. There were six administrations of the one covenant of grace. There was the post-fall, not pre-fall, but post-fall Adamic um, administration of the one covenant of grace. Genesis 3.15, think about that verse. There was the Noahic uh, administration, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and finally the new uh, or renewed covenant. I'll explain that here in a second. The biblical writers regularly used the word covenant to describe these various administrations of the one covenant of grace. They would use the word covenant to describe those administrations. However, their use of these this term covenant does not mean that these are these administrations are actually separate covenants, distinct, essentially different covenants. They are not essentially different covenants, even though they're sometimes described as covenants, the administrations. Uh, they're merely different manifestations of the one covenant of grace. Now, the passage we're looking at this morning in Hebrews chapter 8 highlights the discontinuities or the differences between the two administrations Uh, are between two administrations of the one covenant of grace. So there are continuities between the covenant administrations and there are discontinuities or similarities and dissimilarities. The passage this morning looks at and highlights the dissimilarities between the two particular covenant administrations, the first being the Mosaic covenant, which the writer refers to as the old covenant, and then the new covenant, covenant administration, or the new covenant, which, by the way, uh, can, we, we, he quotes extensively from Jeremiah 
here in chapter 8. In fact, most of chapter 8, the uh, passage is just Jeremiah being repeated. Uh, that word that is used in the Hebrew that is translated new covenant could actually be, and I would argue should be, translated renewed covenant rather than new covenant. And the reason for this is, the reason renewed is a legitimate translation of the Hebrew there is evident from the fact that that very same word that's used for new covenant uh, in, by Jeremiah in the Hebrew, it's the same word that's used to describe the new moon, which of course isn't new. It's just renewed. It just comes back around. Uh, so it's renewed. It's not a different moon. Uh, it's not a brand new moon, in other words. Uh, so y- you may even think about this when you talk about the uh, when you read Jeremiah's passage in particular to uh, think of it as the renewed covenant rather than the the completely new covenant, uh, if you will. Okay, that's all by way of intro. Now we're coming to the two points of the sermon. So first point is this. The new covenant administration of the covenant of grace is superior to the old Mosaic administration and consequently replaces it. And then the second point is we're going to look at why the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace is superior to the old Mosaic covenant administration and consequently replaced it. So first the fact that it's replaced and then the reason why it's replaced constitute the two points in the remainder of our time here in this passage. So first, the new covenant administration of grace, uh, of the one covenant of grace, is superior to the old covenant administration and consequently replaced it. This is evident all over this passage uh, that we're looking at here in Hebrews chapter 8. These two administrations, so I'm talking about the old Mosaic administration, don't equate that now in your heads with the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is broader than the Old Covenant. Although a lot of people think the old, they're one and the same. They're actually not, uh, at least not the way the writer of the Hebrews is describing it. Uh, the, the, these two covenants, the Old Covenant administration or Mosaic administration and the New Covenant or Renewed Covenant administration are at their core the same. Now, here's where we, dispens- we, we disagree significantly with our dispensational brothers and sisters. They think there's a, it's, there's a radical dichotomy between the Mosaic economy or the Mosaic covenant administration and the new covenant. Um, and we see definite discontinuity differences uh, as Reformed folks, but we also see significant, and I'm going to highlight them in a moment, uh, similarities between the two as well. So they are not entirely dissimilar. In fact, under at the bottom, they are both gracious covenants, administrations. Um, and you may have heard that, by the way, as we were reading the, uh, the, uh, shorter, uh, the, uh, the Confession of Faith a few moments ago on those sections on the covenant. So they share these two administrations, uh, like the other administrations, I would say as well, but we're focusing on these two, share the same essence uh, and have the same purpose. This means that they are largely the same in many respects. Now, I'm indebted here to Jeffrey Niles' analysis uh, in the book that he wrote, The Newness of the New Covenant, or actually an essay that he wrote entitled The Newness of the New Covenant some years ago that I uh, happened upon. But he did a good job of analyzing the similarities and the differences between the old and the new covenant administrations uh, in that essay that I just cited. So here are some of the 
um, uh, similarities in both covenants, both the Mosaic covenant and the current uh, new covenant or renewed covenant, God is the one who takes the initiative. Now, that's true of all the covenant administrations. But uh, we see this in uh, 8c. Uh, so he's citing the, Jer- uh, the covenant in Jeremiah, that section in Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, verse 31. And he says, the Lord is speaking, he says, when I will effect a new covenant. So right there it says the new covenant, the covenant we're in, covenant administration we're in, God affects it. Well, this was also true uh, if you look over in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3 and following. It says there that the Lord called to Moses from the mountain and initiated that covenant administration. We won't take the time to turn there because i got a lot of verses uh, I, I do want us to turn to. But the point is, God initiates both administrations. In fact, all of the administrations God initiates. That's the similarity, one similarity. Another similarity is in the case of both covenant administrations. The human parties are the same. Who are those human parties? Professing believers and their descendants, or and their seed, their children. In Exodus, we see this, and this time you may turn there if you wish. Uh, Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. This is regarding the Mosaic uh, uh, covenant. Actually, it's ratification uh, with the covenant, uh, with the blood of the covenant um, sacrifice. And we see there in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. I won't read all what precedes there. But this is the culmination of it. I'll start in verse 7. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Notice the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Everybody was there. Men, women, children, and infants. Yes, as well. The whole of Israel was standing there before the mountain uh, as Moses was speaking to them. And then we see in verse tw- uh, 8, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people with hyssop and said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's with everybody standing before him. That includes everybody Everybody, the whole, all the households of Israel, uh, regardless of the age of the uh, members of that household, were in covenant in this, um, in the uh, Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic administration, the old covenant. And that's, and this is true, of course, in the new covenant as well. Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 38 and 39, that well-known passage, and Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or in relation to the forgiveness of your sins, is how that can be translated. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children. And then he goes on. Again, covenants, uh, the parties to the covenant are believe, professing believers, because we can't read the heart, we can only uh, hear, look at, Uh, hear the words and look at the behavior of someone, but professing believers and their children. The covenants were also similar in that uh, both covenants, both the Mosaic administration and the New Covenant administration, uh, the heart of both covenants is the same. What is the heart of it? It is this phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
that is found throughout the Old Testament, and that language is used by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, uh, and applies it to the New Covenant uh, church. I won't take time to look at it, but uh, it is there. If you want that reference later, come and talk to me. Another similarity is that God's gracious intention to forgive his people, his covenant people, uh, is limited, isn't rather, excuse me, is not limited to the new covenant. This whole notion that the Old Testament people of God were somehow forgiven by their law keeping and, uh, and the New, Test- new Testament people of God are forgiven by Jesus is, it's heresy. It's heretical. It's utterly unbiblical, uh, and it's dead wrong. God offered forgiveness uh, in the old administrations of the covenant of grace, in particular the Mosaic we're referring to, just like he did in the new. Evidence of this is in that well-known psalm that uh, many of us have memorized portions or all of, Psalm 103, verses uh, 8 through 14. We read these familiar words. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Covenant love is what that can be translated, that that Hebrew word there. And he's talking to Old Testament people under the Mosaic Covenant. And he says, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There it is. That was forgiveness was offered under the old covenant, just like it is uh, old covenant administrations, just like it is under the new covenant, as we see that in verse twelve of the passage that we're looking at today, uh, quoting from Jeremiah. Uh, also, having a saving knowledge of the Lord, saving knowledge isn't limited to those who are parties just to the new covenant. Uh, Having a saving knowledge of the Lord is also something that was required or part and parcel of the Mosaic Covenant. I won't take time to turn there, but Jeremiah 24, verses 1 through 8, speaks of, well, I'll read verse 8, rather than that whole section. He says there in verse 8, And I will give to them a new, a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. He's not talking about the New Testament here. Age. He's talking about the people of the Old Testament age. Uh, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. This is after Israel had strayed abominably, and he's talking about the uh, repentance that would take place in the Old Testament church. Also, both party, both covenants rather, could be broken. Both the Mosaic covenant could be broken, and the New Covenant can be broken. Hopefully this isn't news to you at this point, because I repeat this point fairly often uh, to you folks. Uh, The fact that uh, this could be uh, broken by people who are represented in the scriptures as being in covenant with God is evident from the passage, the Jeremiah passage, verse 32 of Jeremiah, which is, which verse is that in the Hebrews here? Sorry, I've got so many places I'm trying to turn, I'm having a little trouble. Um, Yeah, he, where he uses the language, my covenant, which they broke. Um, anyway, he uses that language in there. So, obviously, under the Mosaic Covenant, uh, one could break it, but so too under the New Covenant. If you turn to Second Peter, 
2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and then verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter verse, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. That's some language that requires some explanation, but we don't have time for it now. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. This is Second uh, Peter chapter two, verse one. And then if you skip down to verse 20 and 21 of Second Peter chapter two, "For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome." The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 can also, and chapter 10 can also be adduced to make this point. Covenant breaking is always a possibility. But how is that possible? Is larger, catech- larger Catechism 31 not correct when it says this? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. Notice, all the elect as his seed. The covenant of grace was made with Christ and in him with all the elect as his seed. Does that mean that's wrong, what I'm saying here, if the, if the New Testament, or the New Covenant can be broken? No, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It is correct when it says that. However, the Bible speaks of being in covenant in two different ways. We've talked about this before. But it all boils down to this. Everyone who is in the visible church is in covenant with God, at least legally and outwardly, but not all of them are necessarily in covenant inwardly and vitally or in a living way. Only true believers are in the covenant with Christ vitally, you see. And it is those who are solely in the covenant with God in a legal sense who can, and by the way eventually do, break covenant. So then, the old Mosaic covenant and or covenant administration and the new or renewed covenant administration are the same in many respects, as I hope I've uh, proven to you here in the last few minutes. Um, but they very definitely do differ in certain key respects. Verse nine of our passage um, makes that point. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And uh, Jeremiah reads, they broke my covenant there. Um, and I did not care for them. But notice he says, the new covenant, which he mentions in verse 8, is not like that old covenant. So he's talking about the discontinuity now. Uh, And this is why he says that, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. The renewed or new covenant administration, we are told in verse 6, is a better covenant. It's simply better. There are things about it that are better. Verse 6, I'll read that again. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, uh, meaning than uh, than the old high priests of old, by which... 
as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. It is better. We are in a better place in redemptive history than our Old Testament counterparts were. A much better place. Which is why the Mosaic administration had to be eventually replaced. Because God wanted what was better for his people. And verse 7 makes that point. But if that first covenant, the Mosaic uh, administration, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. But of course, there was occasion sought for a second. Because it was better. Or we are. Give thanks, by the way, that you weren't born 3,000 years ago. Or 2,500 years ago. Okay, so why? Second point. So that's, that's the fact of the matter, and it has been replaced, and we are in a, in, in a, the final covenant administration, if you will, uh, of the one covenant of grace. But why? Why, why is the new covenant administration of, uh, of the one covenant of grace superior to the old covenant administration and thus, uh, replaced it? Why is that? Well, it's superior to the Mosaic administration on account of the fact of the new covenant's abrogation, fancy word for um, dismissal of or, or removal of, the Old Testament ceremonial types and shadows that the writers of the Westminster Confession were referring to there in that, in that uh, one uh, uh, paragraph that I read to you from chapter 7. It, it, it did away with all the types and the shadows. And that's, by the way, it's not immediately obvious, and I'm going to explain it to you here, but that's, by the way, what is being communicated by Jeremiah and the writer of Hebrews through citing Jeremiah in verse 11. Let me read verse 11. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. He is pointing there, and again I'm going to explain it here in just a second, but he is pointing to the abrogation of the Old Testament types and shadows. Not the, not the essence of the Mosaic Covenant, which is gracious, but the ceremonial types and shadows that that were part and parcel of that administration. How do we know this? How do we know that that's what's going on? Actually, let me, let me read, before, I, before I get into that, I want to read one other thing that I wrote here in my notes. He's indicating here in verse 11, again, that I just cited through his quotation of that verse, that in the New Testament age, following the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, the Levitical priesthood, this is the key to understanding this, the Levitical priesthood and all of the ceremonial types and shadows pertaining to that Levitical priesthood and its work were to be done away with in the New Testament age. That's what's going on in verse 11, I'm convinced. And here's why, okay? So there are at least three reasons why uh, I, I'm confident that's what's, what, what Jeremiah and the writer of the Hebrews is speaking of there in verse 11. So first reason is that the immediate context in which Jeremiah's prophecy is quoted, that context, 
in which it's quoted, speaks about ceremonial elements of the Mosaic covenant administration. So, back in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8, which I read to you uh, before we started here, that speaks, and we won't bother to reread it, but it speaks of the fact that the Levitical high priests, the Levitical high priests were types of the coming great high priest, Jesus. But it's talking about the Levitical high priests, who were types, you see. Also, in verse 4 of chapter 8, verse 4 speaks of the earthly tabernacle in which these priests ministered. And it speaks of that earthly tabernacle as a copy and shadow of the heavenly reality in which Jesus is now ministering. Again, this is the immediately preceding this, the context. And then in the following chapters, chapters 9 and 10, they also speak of the ceremonial elements of the Mosaic covenant administration, the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices. Um, and and it's the, chapters 9 and 10 speak of those ceremonial elements and their imperfection and how they pointed forward to Christ and his perfect priestly sacrifice on their behalf. So this is the first reason why I think that's what's going on here in verse 11 uh, in his citation of Jeremiah 31, uh, 31, 31 and following. He's pointing to this because all the immediate context talks about the shadowy ceremonial stuff of the Old Covenant that was imperfect and problematic for numerous reasons. A second reason why I think this is what's going on in verse 11 is that the Levitical priests had a special knowledge of the Lord that other descendants of Jacob did not share. You say, prove that to me. I will. Numbers, chapter 3, verse 2, makes this point. They had an intimacy with God that was not shared by the rest of Israel. Numbers chapter 3, verse 12. I'll back up to verse 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, now here's what he says, at least the first uh, portion of it, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb, among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. He doesn't say that about everybody in Israel. He says it about the Levites. They shall be mine. Replacing the other firstborn. In other words, there's an intimacy, and that points to the intimacy that the Levites had that the rest of Israel didn't have with the Lord, in a, in, in a, in a ceremonial, sense, ceremonial sense at least, didn't have with the Lord under the old Mosaic covenant. And the Hebrew word used to describe the Israelites who were not priests in that passage I just read, Numbers 3.12, the Hebrew word there is translated by the King James as stranger. So these are the people that are not non-Levites, non-priests. The, the word is translated stranger, and it's also translated in the ESV as outsider. 
So unless you were a Levite, a Levitical priest, you were a stranger and an outsider. And this is within the covenant community, by the way. This is not talking about Gentiles. And that Hebrew word is used to describe the non-Levites precisely because they did not possess the level of intimacy that God had with Levitical priests. They were strangers, unlike the Levites. They were outsiders, unlike the Levites. Because they got to go in, you see, into the holy place. And one of them got to go into the Holy of Holies. Nobody else did. So that's the second reason why I think that's what's going on in verse 11 of of Hebrews uh, 8. And then the third reason, the final reason, is one of the principal responsibilities of the Levitical priests was to teach their fellow Israelites how to know God. They were the teachers of the Old Testament church. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, 8 and 10 make this point, and so does Malachi 2, 4 through 7. I'm just going to read the Deuteronomy passage uh, for the sake of time. But over in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 8 first, and then we'll skip over down to verse 10. Moses is blessing the tribes here, and he says of Levi, of the descendants of Levi, and of Levi he, Moses, said, Let thy Thummim and thy Urim belong to thy godly man, whom thou didst prove at Massa, with whom thou didst contend at the waters of Meribah. I might as well read verse 9-2 to get to verse 10 who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them. And he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, referring to Levi. For they uh, observed thy word and kept thy covenant. And then it says in verse 10, They, meaning the descendants of Levi, shall teach thine ordinances to Jacob and thy law to Israel. Their job was to be the teachers of the Old Testament. They were appointed and given that responsibility. And Malachi chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 makes the same point. So, verse 11 is talking about teaching. Uh, Again, quoting from the Jeremiah prophecy, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. What he's getting at there is everybody in the New Covenant administration is going to have the intimacy that only the Levites had under the Old Covenant administration. That's what he is getting at uh, in that, in that uh, verse that I just cited for you. Well, what about the phrase there that I just read? What about that phrase? Well, all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them that's found in Jeremiah's prophecy. What about that phrase? Because it says all. Isn't that saying that in contrast to the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant administration, every last person who is in the new covenant will be saved? That's not what he's saying. Now, if you just read it uh, in isolation, you can come to that conclusion. But you've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. You've got to do theology. And that's not just my job. It's yours as well. 
That's not what he's saying. The Hebrew phrase translated least to the greatest is used six other times by Jeremiah, and each time he uses it, he is referring not to individual people, but he's referring to various classes of people. This is in Jeremiah 6.13, 8.10, 16.6, 42.1, and 42.8, and 44.12. Talk to me later if you want to look those up. The point I'm making is this. When God, through Jeremiah's prophecy, declared, all shall know me from the least to the greatest, he was merely saying, under the New Covenant administration, it won't just be the clergy who will know me in the very intimate way that the Levitical priests now do. Those who are now strangers or outsiders to me in the covenant community, strangers relative to the Levites, they will know me this way as well. Meaning the laity will know me just like the only the Levites did. And the intimacy that I had only with the Levites, everybody will know. You know as well as I. And in addition, under the New Covenant administration, it won't just be the Jews who will know me, but Gentiles, that's all of us here, will know me as well. So then, the writer of Hebrews is using Jeremiah's prophecy to inform his readers in the day, and to inform us that the Levitical priesthood and all the things that have anything to do with it, read the temple, tabernacle, sacrifices, ceremonies, so on, they have been done away with under the New Covenant administration as a result of the coming of the uh, antitype, who is Christ, the fulfillment of all the types and shadows. Kelvin agrees with this. Now, that doesn't mean it's right, but... Uh, I'm going to read what Kelvin said anyway, just to show you a good man who knew his, knew his Bible better than most of us here do, uh, came to the same conclusion. Commenting on Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Kelvin writes, Since it is so, it cannot be inconsistent with the truth and faithfulness of God that the ceremonies should cease as to their use, while the law itself, that is to be, say he means there the moral law, while the law itself remained unchanged. For now then, see that the apostle, and here he's referring to the writer of Hebrews, we now then see that the apostle faithfully interpreted the design of the prophet Jeremiah by accommodating his testimony to the abrogation of the ceremonies. And he's referring to this passage here uh, uh, that is quoted by the writer to the Hebrews and essentially affirming the same conclusion that I'm making right now. So, here's an amplified translation of, this is Mark's translation, with embellishment, not embellishment, but, uh, well, yeah, uh, amplification. There we go. Embellishment sounds suspicious. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to pull one over on you. Here's what he's, here's an amplified translation of verse 11, how it would read. And they, the Levitical priests, shall not teach everyone his own citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all believers will know me, in the intimate way that the Old Testament Levitical priests alone once did, from the least, that is, the humblest ranks of the Christian of the church's membership, to the greatest, 
That is the most prominent members of the church's membership. I know you kind of might go, all that in verse 11? Yes. Yes. I'm doing theology here. And that's legitimate. I'm convinced that's the not just legitimate, but correct understanding of the point he is making there based on all that I've marshaled here or tried to marshal before you. So, in conclusion, the ceremonial, uh, the ceremonies that were appropriate before Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension are no longer appropriate for us. This is why uh, we do not observe the uh, Jewish feast days of the Old Testament. There are some Christian folks, well-meaning, who think that's appropriate. I remember back in my Methodist church days, um, I shouldn't have brought up the name, but anyway, my previous church days, that we would have seders. We would celebrate seders. At, uh, I had no idea what that was going on. I just enjoyed the, the unleavened bread and the, the herbs that we were eating. But I remember doing that. No. Not, that's not appropriate. That's, that's, that's fleeing back to the, the types and the shadows of old. That's not appropriate for you and me. Those are beggarly, uh, uh, poor substitutes for the real thing. We have the real deal as the Lord Jesus who dwells within us by His Spirit. We are not to be doing such things. This is why we don't, this is not an altar, it's a communion table. We don't offer up anything, any sacrifices up to God here. And again, um, sometimes, quite oftentimes, people make that mistake and call this uh, an altar. It's not. And, you know, uh, illustrations can abound here uh, beyond the ones that I have just given you. But so don't look to, um, with, with fondness to Israel's experience. It's not as good. You've got it much better. And also note this, I alluded to it a moment ago, but your potential for intimacy with God is just as great as mine is, even though I've got a seminary degree and I'm a teaching elder in this church. Just because I'm a teacher doesn't mean I have a more intimate relationship with God than you do or can. In the Old Testament, Mosaic administration, that wasn't true. It is now. We have it much better, folks. It was hard being a faithful Jew. All the, all the, all the things that went with the ceremonial law, it was, it was a burden. And I think it was intentional on God's part to make it burdensome so that people wouldn't want to flee back to um, the ceremonial elements of the law. And yet, the sinful part of us sometimes is drawn to things just like that. This is why our worship, one of the reasons why we believe in the regulative principle, our worship is, how should we say, unadorned, which is we don't uh, 
we don't believe that the Lord would have us in the New Testament age uh, have our worship resemble, in a lot of ways, Old Testament worship, which was full of adornment, was full of uh, priests and um, um, vestments and other such things. We, we believe that the Lord has, uh, has something better for us. And uh, that's why one of the reasons why we worship the way we do and not the way uh, some other churches do, that, uh, or there's much more pageantry, shall we say. And it, gets, it takes some getting used to, especially if you grew up in one of those, one of those traditions. But we believe that that is uh, consistent with uh, the point that is being made here by the writer of the Hebrews and, and, uh, and the Lord, I think. If you're here uh, or listening to my voice uh, and you have never understood that you are a sinner deserving of God's wrath in hell for eternity, which we all deserve, uh, and have not, uh, have not understood that, or have maybe understood that but have looked to your own efforts to please God by your own good works to hopefully get you forgiven by God, the only thing you need to understand from this sermon or remember from this sermon is you need the great high priest to minister before God for you. Otherwise, you will go to hell for eternity, as will I. Because the only one that can save us from what we deserve from the wrath of God is the high priest whom the priests of the Old Testament were mere shadows of. They didn't actually get the job done. They didn't actually forgive people. Uh, but they pointed, by their, uh, by their actions and their office, they pointed to the one who actually forgives people and makes them right with God, and that is Jesus, who is both the great high priest, who is the officiant before, uh, in, the, in the heavenly holy of holies, and he is also the sacrifice. He brought himself and his lifeblood to, to God and offered it up on behalf of all those who would put their trust in him alone to save them. Have you done that? Children, have you all done that? Have you trusted consciously and deliberately in Jesus alone to save you? Just because you're born in a Christian family doesn't mean uh, you can just coast into heaven on, because mom and dad are Christians. That's not true. You need to trust Christ as your only hope. And you adults in this room, if you're trusting in your good works, you're not a Christian. You're not forgiven if you're trusting in your efforts to make you right with God. You must trust in Jesus' perfect efforts, perfect obedience, perfect sacrifice, or you will experience the wrath of God for eternity. Flee to Christ if you've not done that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. For